Well, good morning. Um, I ought to warn you that uh, I haven't been at any of this series so far, and I wasn't at any of the discussions about this series. So that means I might say all the things that John said last week we shouldn't say about Zechariah, but if I do, I'm, I'm sure he's right. Um, but uh, this morning we come to one of the central visions in this first half of Zechariah. Um, and uh, these visions are built in a, in a structure that moves towards the middle. It's known as a chiasm. It's a typical uh, structure of, uh, in the Old Testament that we find. The, the first and the last pairs uh, match up. They have common themes. And then the, the second and third match with the sixth and seventh. And then these two middle ones uh, match together. Um, and, and you can go away. I'm not going to talk much about actually what the themes are that tie that together. It's a fairly loose uh, structure. The, the most obvious thing is that you move from at the outside to the sort of Gentile territory, and then you move into Jerusalem. And then in these middle two, uh, we're in the temple. Um, so the reason I'm telling you this is, again, so that you can just finally be rest assured that I did learn something at the theological college. Um, no, the, re the reason I'm saying this is because uh, this points to the fact that this is the climax of the, these visions in the first half of Zechariah. Um, this is a structure that's, that's used to emphasize um, these mid, the middle section. Um, so this week and next week are the focal point of these visions, after which um, you, can, you can go to sleep. Sorry for whoever's preaching Zechariah 5. But my hope is uh, very much, um, as Dan prayed really, uh, not that we will necessarily go away with a sense of ex exactly how we are to change our behavior. Um, in that sense, there's no application of this passage, really, in a lot of ways. It's, it's more the hope uh, that we will go away struck afresh by the beauty of the gospel as it's expressed here. Um, and that that will, that will drive us to desire the glory of God as expressed in this passage, to, to be brought into our daily lives as we move around Oxford somehow. Um, so let me pray for that uh, once again as we start. Father, you're a God who loves to communicate. Uh, you're a God of glory, and uh, we, your people, long to see more of your glory. We long to see more clearly uh, the beauty of your face. Um, we long to live lives that reflect that beauty more and more. So take uh, your word this morning um, and what I've prepared and speak your truth into our lives uh, that we may know you better and reflect you more clearly. Amen. I'm just going to drop this back down a little bit, actually. So you can see my lovely shirt. Well, you, you probably know by now uh, that Zechariah is bringing his prophecies to a people who are deeply discouraged. Uh, the nation of Israel is a nation that's built on promise. The promise uh, originally given to Abraham right back in uh, the uh, early Genesis that God would bless the, the nation of Israel um, and that he would make them a vessel for his blessing uh, throughout the world. 
And in essence, that's the plot of the whole Old Testament. How, is the, how are these promises going to come true? Um, now, over centuries of history, uh, the people of Israel have waited uh, for this promise to come true. Uh, they, uh, they were redeemed from slavery in Egypt, um, and they were brought into the promised land, but it wasn't quite as it had been promised. It, it wasn't the total victory and the everlasting peace that was, that was written on the label. Um, since then, they've seen the land slowly slip from their grasp. It's, it's expanded, but now it's shrunk again. And in fact, they've been conquered uh, by the surrounding powers, and a lot of them have been taken away for, to, to Babylon. Um, a new generation of Israelites have recently returned to what is still just a little province of, uh, of the Babylonian Empire, uh, known as Yehud. For centuries, too, the prophets within the Israelite community have been reminding the Israelites that central to God fulfilling his prophecies is, as fulfilling his promises, is that they stay loyal to him, that they live holy lives devoted to his kingdom. The prophets who are around during the exile um, promise a return from exile if the people will repent. These are some of the words of, of Isaiah, how he describes the road back from exile in Isaiah 35. A highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it, but only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now, as Zechariah writes, um, the people have returned from exile, but again, it has not been the glorious return that they were expecting. It's not been the glorious return that Isaiah describes. They're still under the power of Babylon, and they've, they've come back to rebuild the temple as it, after it was sacked by the Babylonians. And, of course, it's the, what they're building now is a pitiful, small temple compared to the grand temple that was built by Solomon. And they've had all sorts of opposition that they've been struggling with. And they're so discouraged that the work on the temple has ground to a halt. The momentum of Israel's history does not seem to be moving towards fulfillment of these promises. Um, in fact, worse than that, really, they're just a tiny pawn in the conflicts of the powers that surround them. It's like they're just a tiny dinghy caught in the shipping lane. I remember as a teenager um, sailing a small dinghy um, into the path of the Isle of Wight ferry. Um, I think I even got it to blow its horn at me. Now, it was terrifying. Now, the Isle of Wight ferry is not a particularly big ferry, but from a dinghy, it is terrifying. Um, and, uh, and they look very intimidating from underneath. And, of course, I told all my friends that I'd played chicken with the Isle of Wight ferry. But in reality, if we had come into contact, there would really have been no contest. I don't know if you remember a little while ago the tragic story of, of a yacht that got mown over by a, um, a ferry in the English Channel. Um, the, it was at night, and the yacht was struck and sank immediately, shattered, and took the three sailors with them. Um, and the only reason that, the, that they knew that the accident had happened at all was the small dent on the side of the ferry, that tiny thunk as the ferry mowed over this yacht. 
didn't even rise above the, the hubbub of discussion of the, of, for the captain and his, and his crew. A, a dinghy is just simply no match for a ferry. But that's what the Israelites must have felt like um, as they saw these powers around them and as they experienced being swapped from empire to empire. They were a tiny, irrelevant footnote in the history of the real nations around them. These promises of future hope just seemed completely inconsistent with the suffering that they were experiencing. So with that background, um, Zechariah's words in chapter 1 uh, must have sounded truly absurd. This is chapter 1, verse 14. It says, This is what the Lord Almighty says, I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I am angry with the nations that feel secure. As the returning exiles heard Zechariah, it would have felt like they were sitting in that dinghy with the ferry bearing down on them, and as the ferry blew its horn, Zechariah stands up and thinks, says, you think you're the secure ones, but actually we're the secure ones. We're the ones that God has chosen. It would have just seemed absurd. But Zechariah is only affirming, actually, that despite appearances, despite the sinfulness that has delayed the fulfillment of God's promises, these covenants, this covenant still stands. Then on in chapter 2, Zechariah points to these uh, broken city walls and the, the enormous vulnerability that would have come from that. And God quotes God saying, this is verse 4 of chapter 2, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. In other words, the pillar of fire, the Shekinah glory, uh, which represents the presence of God in the temple, is going to envelop the whole city. It's going to be completely safe. He goes on in verse 10. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So here is Zechariah standing in his stranded dinghy, uh, staring up at the underside of the ship's hull, and he shouts, if you touch us, you'll sink like a stone. But don't worry, we'll come and save you. If the Israelites weren't so embarrassed putting their life jackets on, if they weren't so busy putting their life jackets on, they would have had the time to be embarrassed. But they didn't. Israel, despite appearances, remains God's chosen vessel of blessing. And God longs to see the repentance that uh, his promises will, will, will require in order to be fulfilled. As the book's introduction says, uh, Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. So here's the quandary that we have. If the people of Israel will not stop sinning, how will these promises ever come true? Or will God just abandon them in their sin? Will God abandon them and all the nations that they were to be a, bless a blessing to? Well, this is the quandary that the, this morning's passage addresses. It opens 
with the high priest standing before God in dirty clothes. Now, this is, this is not the famous Joshua of Jericho fame. This is several hundred years later. This is the high priest Joshua. Um, anyway, to you or I, these, uh, these dirty clothes don't seem too terminal. Uh, maybe it's on a par with walking into a job interview with your flies undone or something like that. It's, it's embarrassing. It's certainly unfortunate. But it's, it's something you'll laugh about one day. But to, to Zechariah, as he looks on, this would have been an unspeakable tragedy. To understand why that is, we need to look at the connotations of this image. The connotations that are tied up in the Day of Atonement uh, that this image would have evoked. Now, the Day of Atonement was a yearly event which the high priest, in which the high priest entered uh, the presence of God as a representative of the people to make atonement for his own sins and then for the sins of everyone else. And this is how it's described in Leviticus chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And he goes on to describe uh, the exact process by which the high priest is to go uh, through to make atonement for himself uh, and then for the whole people. But in Zechariah's vision, here is the high priest standing before God and these pure white sacred garments are in fact filthy. Imagine, if you will, that uh, you're in prison and uh, you're part of a prison break. Uh, you've taken over the prison, but now you're surrounded and it's, it's time to start trying to negotiate for the sake of all of your lives. So you find a, a prisoner with uh, the best negotiating skills, somebody who's, you know that the prison warden is fond of him, and you clean him up, you give him a shave, and uh, you send him out to represent the rest of the prisoners. The lives of all of you depend uh, on this guy, and in the uneasy silence, you stare out through the bars as he approaches the prison warden, and you realize, to your horror, that he's wearing a T-shirt that says, the warden can go hang! The high priest and the whole nation, um, has the whole nation riding on him as he approaches God's throne in the Day of Atonement. But as Zechariah sees, this man is actually totally offensive before God, totally unacceptable in his presence. He is in no position to make atonement for the people. What's worse, Satan himself is standing beside him, making sure that God doesn't miss anything. But the accuser has missed something uh, to which he actually has no response. Joshua... Of, and, and all of Jerusalem, which he represents, stands before God not on the basis of their own sinlessness, but actually because they are chosen by God. Verse 2 of our passage. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. 
the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is, not the, is this not a man, uh, is, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? In other words, um, the people have been in the fire of judgment in exile, but God has chosen to take this stick out of the fire before it burns up completely. God has allowed uh, his chosen people to be burnt down to this weak, discouraged remnant, but he has not let the fire destroy them completely. It is a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. Um, to prove it, God, the very person who has been offended uh, by Joshua's clothes, offers him new clothes. The angel said to those who are standing with him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. I will put, on rich, put rich garments on you. And, and Zechariah then says, put a clean turban on his head. He's so caught up in the significance of the events that he sees, that he sees before himself that he just forgets himself. But they do what he says. They put a clean turban on his head and clothe him while the angel of the Lord stands by. In other words, Zechariah says, complete this guy's priestly outfit again. Now that he is, main, he is clean, we see that he is commissioned afresh. It's time for a fresh start. Uh, verse 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here, which probably means uh, the, the heavenly beings around God's throne. So God grants Joshua the privilege of charge over Israel's worship afresh. And he grants him, again, access into his presence, provided that he lives out the holy life which his new clothes represent. He offers him this fresh start. But more than that, Joshua and his team of priests are to represent something which hasn't yet happened. Look at verse 8. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you. You are men symbolic of things to come. To remove any doubt about these promises of God, God engraves them on a stone. The stone here represents what is to come, um, and it could, it could mean a number of different things. It's a, it's a broad term in Hebrew, and so is the word that's used for eyes here. It could mean facets, it could mean springs. It's, so there's a lot of different opinions about quite what the stone means. Um, so no one's exactly sure. Of course, the number seven is the number of completion, so it seems likely that, that this uh, stone represents the uh, completion of... Uh, the, of, of, of God's promises. Obviously, they're in the middle of building the temple. Stones are useful things at a time like that. Uh, for building, it could just be a simple building stone, uh, though, of course, it's got seven sides, which doesn't make it very useful for building. Um, it's more likely to be a precious stone, um, like the one that was incorporated into the high priest's outfit, um, in which case, this promise, the promise engraved on this stone, um, is something that is going to sit right at the center of his outfit, right at the center of all of the, uh, uh, all of the, the things that the high priest does. Look with me at the promise that's engraved on this stone. I will remove the sins of this land 
in a single day. And it carries on. But the, but the person you see here that's going to accomplish this removal of sin is going to be the branch. Now, of course, all this stones and all these stones and branches um, seem a little bit random after the majesty of the first half of the vision. But to Zechariah's listeners, of course, they would have evoked um, strong things that have already been done and said. Um, look at the branch as it's described in Jeremiah 33. Let me read that to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from Jesse's line. He will do what is right, a just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. And there are a number of other passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah that talk about the branch in similar kind of ways. The point is that the one who clothed Joshua again is the same one who will give you clean clothes. He is the one who will be righteous on your behalf. This branch, this descendant of David, is the Lord who is our righteousness. Look at the next bit of the promise. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. The land of Israel will finally experience the, the true peace and prosperity which they have been waiting for right since the, the promise was first given. So what do we do uh, with this promise? Um, what does this stone engraving mean for us? I mean, in a way, we no longer need this stone, do we? Because the single day when our sins will be removed has in fact happened. It was Good Friday. It was the day when Jesus hung on the cross, dressed in our filthy robes. He, he is the branch who removes our sin in a single day. And he is the one uh, to come of which of whom the, the, the high priest and his priests were symbolic. He is our true high priest. He is also our true sacrifice. This is how he is described in Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. To stand before God is to realize our own filthy robes. That's what always happens. The clearer our image of God, our clearer view of the, of the holiness of God, the more aware we are of our own sinfulness. Remember how Isaiah responded when he was faced with the holiness of God. Woe to me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And we too have an accuser who stands at our side, 
making sure that every dark detail of our sin, every last mark on our robes is brought to light. But for us too, the accuser is silenced, and he is silenced by the one whose name is the Lord our righteousness. However, in another way, we do still need this stone, this, this promise uh, in Zechariah. We have seen our robes exchanged. We've been given this fresh start as promised if we are believers. But we have not yet seen the day uh, when the land is fully restored. We, will, we have not seen the day when we sit together in the shade of a fig tree, enjoying perfect peace with each other and with God. Very much like the Israelites themselves, uh, we look at the state of the world around us, and it's easy to feel like God's promises cannot possibly hold any real meaning. The temple looks so small, and the world around us considers itself so secure, we feel like a dinghy caught in the shipping lane. So we do need this stone, because our challenge is to stare full-faced at the world that we see around us and believe that God is in charge, that he has made the church, uh, the new people of God, to be the vessel of his blessing. And of course, we have far more assurance than they did because we have seen the promised single day and we are simply awaiting the completion, the, the consummation of these promises. But the challenge for us is to hold on to this engraved stone of God's promises, to stand with the uh, people of Israel who experienced the same incongruity that we did in many, do in many ways, um, and pray to the Lord our righteousness um, that his kingdom may come.